Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey, y'all. Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, I think they were, they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, dailydownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com.
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. When I get out of school, I go over there and, you know, just, you know, can I do anything? Can I do something? Can I do something? Can I do something? And finally, I, they just sit here, shut up, and sweep the floors. Well, I knew my dad was pissed. Yeah. Shouldn't be letting Rusty Walsh ride right. his car because yeah. he's yeah. a cup guy, yada, yada, yada. But I was like, you know, bring it on, right? Well, I'm looking out the right side window, and here's Steve Meal is. And he leaned his head in the car, and he was like, don't worry, we're going to get this. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault podcast presented by QWare. And this week, Steve was not able to record. He's up in Asheville, North Carolina, spending some time with his daughter and couldn't make it for the show. This week, we have as a substitute co-host, the legendary, the one and only, the immortal, former co-host of Spun Out and Half Turned Over, Dennis Punch. Dennis, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Rick. <laughs> Question is, how many other people turned you down before I said yes? <laughs> well, we won't get into that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because it was kind of funny. We were talking before we started recording, and you have been on the show before, and we couldn't figure out exactly when it was that you were on the show as a co-host. And I got to looking at the log that I kind of try to keep, and... <laughs> The episode that you were on posted on December the 2nd, 2018. Now, what day are we recording this? Pretty close to that. Pretty close. December the 2nd, 2019. So evidently, you can only stomach me <laughs> well, let's look once on the a year. Let's once look a year. on the bright side. That gives me something to look forward to next time. <laughs> well, Merry Christmas. <laughs> now, Dennis, this week I talked to Bobby Labonte. And I know that's somebody that you have spent quite a bit of time around in your duties as the Anheuser-Busch PR rep in the Bush Series. I think you were there when he won the championship. Yes, I was. In 1991, uh, Bobby won the uh, Bush Series championship. Remember it well. And uh, remember uh, how excited as a young man he was to win uh, his first major championship in oh, racing. Yeah. Well, this week he talks about the big move from Texas to North Carolina when Terry was young in his career and his family moved to North Carolina to support Terry's beginning efforts in the Winston Cup division. He talks about working in his brother Terry's cup shop and some of his own struggles to get going in the sport before finally winning the 1991 Bush Series Championship. So that was a pretty cool conversation. Well, Bobby's had a, and their Labonte family's had a tremendous history in the sport. And to, to, to make a move from uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, to, to pursue their dreams in racing, um, uh, very reminiscent of what uh, a lot from the Midwest and the Northeast have done to move down to the Carolinas to pursue their racing careers and uh, to, have, uh, to have the accomplishments that both Bobby and Terry have had in the sport and Labonte racing. Uh, certainly something to be proud of. Well, then in our second segment, we're going to take some listener questions. We had some emails come in. We had some tweets come in. So we are going to take some questions and try to answer them to the best of our ability. And finally, listeners, support us on Patreon. Support us on PayPal. Support QWare. Support Brian Kelb. 
through $5 a month, and you can receive one of these beautiful commemorative issues of Grand National Sane that Darlington did, plus a classic issue of Winston Cup Sane. Do $10 a month, you'll get the papers and the signed Steve Wade Tracks rookie card. Ah, Dennis, I got to notice you have not signed up on Patreon to get one of these just awesome autographed cards of Steve Wade. Now, what's the deal? I've got three of them at home when they first came out. <laughs> but they're unsigned. Oh, okay. Now, to get one signed, yeah, get hooked up on Patreon. And you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast or on PayPal if you would rather do just a one-time show of support. You can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Bobby, you were born and raised in Texas, but moved with your family to North Carolina in the late 1970s. What was your reaction to that? Because you were probably, what, a teenager at that time and getting uprooted and Mm -hmm. moving to the land of the unknown. So what was that like for you? Yeah, it was was more, you know, we, we had traveled all over the country, so I was used to going places, but I wasn't Obviously, I'd been stuck at the in the same house since I was born, and lived right there on Key West Drive. And you know, Corpus was my mainstay. And you know, at that point in time, I was um, I think I was fourteen. I think I was fourteen years old, and I'd been to the beach surfing a little bit. Um, you know, kind of a a Vans, um, not not like a. Beach. I didn't know you were a surfer, dude. Yeah, well, <laughs> I wasn't a surfer, dude. I was just surfed. Okay, okay. I- but I, I, but I had that, but that was, but that was my problem was I wanted to be a surfer, surfer dude. Okay. So all when right. we, when we lived there before we moved, I was like, all right, I'm going to get me a Volkswagen bug. I'm going to put a surfboard on the top. And that's, you know, when I turned 16, that <laughs> yeah. was my dream car. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to go surfing every day in, at the jetties at, in Padre Island. You know, I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that was my thought process. So when, when we uprooted from there to move, you know, when you're 14, you're not, it's not like you got a lot of say so in anything. You just right. you're just kind of going. But I definitely was upset that when we moved to Trinity, North Carolina, on that Monday, <clears throat> that the beach was three and a half hours away. So I was very disappointed <laughs> yeah. that that didn't yeah. work out for me because my whole Volkswagen beach trip, beach going thing, kind of was out the window at that point in time. But uh, luckily, I didn't probably complain too much. I just went with it. Uh, but it definitely was a you know, I didn't know what we we're going to get ourselves into. Of course, I just you know moved my parents, and I was upset because I didn't get a, I didn't couldn't go to the beach every day. Well, here's a thought: What would it have been like to complain to Bob Labonte anyway? What yeah. good would it have done? You get the smack, <laughs> the smackdown, <laughs> WWE smackdown. <laughs> Terry got his first win in the 1980 Southern 500. Were you there that day? I was. Actually, I was. I I think I was actually there in '79 when he was fourth. Um, I'm pretty sure I was. And then 80, I was there. Um, what was that day like? You know, I, 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 a couple, a couple things come to my mind. I think it was either 79 or 80, a friend of ours, Bobby Young, uh, that sponsored my brother back in Corpus. He would travel to all the races for many years. You probably crossed paths with him at some yeah, point in time yeah. as he did this for three or four years. He was there every weekend. And he, I remember him telling Terry, I'm not, I can't remember if it's 79 or 80, he said, I know it's hard to run 500 miles, but it's hard to drink 500 miles because he was <laughs> up in the grandstand. So, so in 80, though, but remembering, you know, just thinking about obviously 79 was Terry's first year. And, and then in 80, 
you know, getting in the pits, um, you know, hanging out in the pits for me. Uh, and for him winning that race, I mean, it was just, you know, I, it was almost like, I'm not really sure this is happening because when you're a kid growing up, you're watching on TV when you do, when you can watch it on TV and you keep up with, when you can keep up with the Richard Petty's, AJ Foyt's and David Pearson's and Kelly Arbro's and, and the likes. And then, uh, when that happened, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I remember it enough that it was so cool and, uh, just remember the crowd that was there and, uh, Daryl Bryant, uh, my dad, uh, was working on the car and, and several other people. And just, it was just like, wow, this is, this is really cool. And I, I just, I don't think I knew the impact of it. Yeah. So you weren't old point. enough necessarily to, well, I'm more 64. So I guess I was 16. Okay. So I still wasn't old enough to, right. to, to grasp exactly what that meant as far as a grand national win uh for terry and uh but i was there that day and snuck in the pits i'm sure and did the whole thing uh uh, like that i remember you know i remember the cast of characters there and terry winning that race was i mean just thinking about all those the that monte carlo and and all that it was you know again didn't know the uh magnitude of how special it was until later but that was uh, a fun day now, as time progressed, did you have any kind of actual role on the team, or were you pretty much just hanging out at the racetrack? There's at least one photo on social media kind of hanging around where you're the catch can guy Yep, on a stop. Yeah, uh, I think in 80, uh, probably 82, you know, I started, uh, you know, Hagen, Hagen Enterprises, Hagen Racing was in uh, Thomasville. So Daryl Bryant worked there. My, my dad worked there. Um, you know, Jake Elder was there for a while yeah uh, i can't remember the years right off the top of my head well jake elder was there he wasn't there for long so <laughs> no he wasn't he wasn't yeah. but um so i would go after school so probably 82 i'd go after school and um just you know die to do anything right i just let me do something so it was like all right so jake was there at the time and jake said all right you can sweep the floors just sweep the floors in the afternoon and that's it of course he didn't say that nice but anyway sweep the floors in the afternoon <laughs> so my my role there um basically was uh, come in on Monday through Friday and sweep the floors, just clean up. Uh, Fridays, I'd mop the floors, and that was it. And then I got to the point where I could, I'd go to the, uh, I'd wash vans, because everybody traveled in vans, right? I had a few Chevrolet vans. And then I get to go to the bank and get $1 bills for, you know, for everybody for a poker game on Friday afternoon, or maybe Thursday afternoon, something like that. So anyway, I was part of the uh, the the mafia gang that would go to the bank and get the get the money. So anyway, I did that. So that was you know that was my first thing at, at Hagen was was basically just sweeping floors. And when Jake was there, you know I was trying to do more and more, and he finally he wouldn't let me do more. So he said, "Go back in the back, you know, go back to where Dewey Live and good, and like bother him." <laughs> so okay, so I went back to Dewey, and I was like, you know, can I do something? And Dewey would work all night, you know, or you know into the night and uh, getting uh, the right bearings in the camshafts and he'd go through that and I was just mesmerized by it and so anyway I just hung out enough he said all right if you want to do something he probably you know again looking back on it now after talking about it I'm sure it's like get out of my hair so I went back there and just did the dirtiest job in the world deburring blocks which is like the nastiest thing you could do (laughs) so I did that so I remember in 80 was it 82 when Terry crashed at Riverside and broke his 82 or 83 when I think it was 83 so the I always used to initial my blocks that I would deburr and so that it broke the block, but it was mine. It was one that I mean, I say it's my block. It was right. the one yeah, that I yeah, yeah, I worked yeah, on yeah. to deburr, which was wow. anybody could do it. But anyway, that that's kind of what how I kind of got my foot in the door over there. Is just you know going after school. You know when I get out of school, I go over there and you know just 
you know, can I do anything? Can I do something? Can I do something? Can I do something? And finally, I, they just said, here, shut up and sweep the floors. So basically, that's, that's what I started doing. Once you moved to North Carolina, how did your own driving career develop as you were working at the shop and everything? Yeah, you know, I, as we left Texas, uh, we raced quarter midgets for years prior to all this. And then, so when, we, when Terry moved to North Carolina in 79, we didn't, or 78, we didn't come right away up here. We didn't move, you know, right behind him. But we were probably, I don't know, maybe a year later and uh, or, or less. So my dad bought me a go-kart. So it was a, I think it was a Margay sprint cart with a Honda, with a McCullough 93 or maybe a Honda engine on it. So I went up to this, this little track, little road course, Bay, uh, not Baylands, um, I don't remember the name of it now. But anyway, this little track uh, about an hour from us. And so we started racing there. And I raced there for, you know, a couple, three months, I guess. And we were like, you know, that was the go-kart thing. And then we moved. Uh, so when we moved up here, um, I ran a little bit of go-karts on at North Davidson and Liberty and kind of kind of raced a little bit like that. And it was all dirt tracks and two cycles. And everybody was up here four cycles. And I thought that was dumb. And two cycles <laughs> yeah. is like cool. And yeah. so I kind of, um, but I, I stayed in the, I stayed in the go-kart. Uh, so, a uh, guy in town, Norwood Stone, had CKS South, which was accompanied with CKS North, which if you're go-karting, that's Mark Dismore. So, we got an enduro kart, enduro, enduro kart. So, in the early 80s, I would go race at Rockingham, Charlotte, uh, Daytona, uh, Talladega, Savannah, I don't know, probably a couple others in there somewhere. And uh, so, it was a lay-down kart, enduro kart, and I raced that, you know, for a few years until I got out of that, um, you know, going to Daytona with me and my dad racing the winter, winter series on the big track. Um, and I think it was 1979 actually. And, um, 79 or 80, I still got the trophy. So I finished fifth and my, my claim to fame. I love the fact that I've, I've kidded Scott Pruitt forever on this one. Cause it's like, yeah, I'm, you know, my whole claim to fame about road racing is I've Scott Pruitt finished like third and I was fifth in that. Race, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we were 16 yeah. years old. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, so go-karting was my, you know, getting to race when I moved to North Carolina. That was at least something I can continue to do after leaving Texas. You actually made your first Bush Series, I guess it would have been Budweiser Late Model Sportsman start in 1982, the first year of the division. And then you made another in 1985. Was that something where you were actually pursuing a full-time ride in that division? Or was that more just for the experience? Um I'm not sure it was either. I think it was just, I don't know that I was expected to do it. I wanted to do it. And we just had enough money to do one. And so we just put all our eggs in one basket to go do one. And it was probably not, it was, it was good experience, but it wasn't like it was a, um, it wasn't a, um, you know, something that we, you know, I don't know that back then you had a piece of paper and you, you said, okay, we're going to do three races this year and five the next year at, at yeah. that point in time. We did later, but not at that point in time. So it was just an opportunity and driving, uh, you know, somebody's car, got a little bit of money, you know, 250 bucks here, 300 bucks there and, you know, went <laughs> yeah. racing. And, yeah. um, and, 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 you know, looking back on it, it's like, okay, you know, if I, you know, if you had to step back and punt, you'd say, well, probably shouldn't have done it that way because we're here we are trying to race in the grand national series with morgan shepherd sam r and all this stuff and it's like well what's your experience level zero so and we had no funding it's not like we can go buy our way we didn't yeah. you know can't you know like you can't go buy the best car or the best this i mean back then you built your stuff so we were uh, 
you know, if you had to look back on it, you'd probably say, let's go to Caraway and race street stocks for, for a year <laughs> and get some experience. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, I can look back on that. It was a great experience and it was great time and story. And I mean, it was like, uh, you know, it was a wow moment for me to, to, as a young kid to go do that and race a few. I mean, it, again, it was only when we had money and could, could go do it. Bobby, you are one of the few these days who could say that you've raced against guys like Sam R., Jack Ingram, Tommy Ellis, Tommy Houston. <laughs> what was the competition like back then? Because you broke into that division at a time when kids did not compete. Mm-hmm. That division was for guys who had kids, mm-hmm. who had teenagers. Right. They were grizzled veterans and you were not. What was it like? Back you, then. Yeah, well, at, at, at least for me, you know, even though I ran that one race in, you know, 82, I really didn't start racing the Grand National Series until, you know, 87, uh, 8, you know, like five races, six right. races type yeah. of thing. So at least, and by then I was at least a little bit older than a, you know, wasn't a teenager, you know, so I was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, mid-20 yeah. type of guy. And, but, you know, I mean, it was, um, you know, as we went through our you know, I say our planning, just it planning on how, how much money can you get to go race as much as you can and, and how to go do that. So to, to go to that level uh, and to go to um, places, Darlington, Charlotte, um, you know, we, we went and ran some races that, you know, got some money, got a sponsorship sponsor to, to help us out. But, you know, the, back to your question, the competition, I mean, I mean, it was like it was amazing. Um, I mean, th- these guys, that was their living that we raced with. When it's your living, it's a different type of. It's similar. It's different. It it's similar in ways, but it's different because right. when you're racing against Jack Ingram, this is his life and this is his way of living, and this is what you do to make a living. Um, you race, you know, Tommy Houston, Tommy Ellis. <laughs> What's your best Tommy Ellis story? <laughs> you go down the list. You go down the list of all these guys, yeah. and yeah. and. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't really know that I had much. I didn't. I don't have a good Tommy Ellis story because I probably didn't get on the wrong side of Tommy. But uh, I mean, well, Tommy, you didn't try very hard, then. Well, <laughs> I knew my. I knew my. I knew. You know what your what your limit is on yeah. what you need to be doing and not to be doing. But you know, but you think about um, Jimmy Hensley, um, Gene Glover. I went to Caraway one time and ran a race. Borrowed a car from Mike Swain. Stole an engine in from the back of the Hagen Racing. I literally stole it, borrowed it, borrowed it. <laughs> Went down there, qualified ninth. Gene Glover's like tenth, and I remember, you know, telling Tony, I'm like, I mean, this is like, dude, this is Gene Glover. He's like three time champion, right? Yeah. And I get spun out on like lap five from Daryl Wheeler, and I'm on the back straightaway. The um, engine won't crank because the starter's, you know, three years old. And Earnhardt was there that night, and he come driving by and pointing his finger like, you know, like, all right, kid. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm like, yeah. but, you know, Sam Ard was there, Monk Tate yeah, was there, yeah. Morgan was there in the hot rod bar number seven. Um, man, oh, man. I mean, just um, thinking about that. But the, the competition was just fierce because those guys, that was their living. And, you know, you didn't you didn't have luxury. You just you just figured it out. And when you raced against them, I mean, it was, it was it's hard racing because that's just the way you do it. Tell me about working with your dad, Bob. Um, <laughs> he seemed to be pretty much the poster child for being tough as nails. Yep. What was it like working with him? Uh, awesome. You know, I mean, I, I learned so much. And, I mean, yeah, there was, uh, you know, I, I, I learned so much. And he, he is one hard guy not to work for, but he just wants, 
He wants you to do good. He wants you to win. He wants to win. He wants to do good, and he he teaches you along the way. And it's really, you know, reflecting back on it. I mean, it's just it's one of those things. You you know, there was times it's like, oh boy, oh boy, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get my butt chewed out. You know for sure, and I did. But the lessons that that he teaches, um, second to none. I mean, it just was. Um, you know, he would pat you on the back when you did good. It's just sometimes you didn't see that. People don't see that very much. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, it's like as hard as he is outside, his heart is as big as could be, <laughs> and he could be the teddy bear at the times that you you didn't see that at the track. But he was, um, I think, I, I probably had it easier than the employees we had working for us. He was probably harder on them than he was me. He was still hard on me, but... You know, as years went on, he told me one day, he said, you know, you can drive around backwards and hit everybody if you want to. I'd still, you're, you're my son. It's not, yeah. you're doing you're doing everything right. So anyway, but, you know, he, it was fun because it's just, I mean, how, what's, the, what's the chances of being able to do that for as long as we did and work with your dad and family and, you know, um, I guess survive it. You know what I mean? We didn't, you know, we didn't like, okay, that's enough. I'm never going to, I'm going to move to California. You know yeah. what I mean? We just, yeah. I mean, we love the fact that we... I love the fact that we were able to work together. And I mean, like I said, he taught me it so much and he expected a lot. And I think that's, you know, I'm like, you know, dude, I'm glad he did that. I'm glad he, he made me that way. I mean, he, he made me see things differently than if I would have said, you know, if I would have not, if he would have not, if he didn't do that, I'd have looked at things a little bit differently. And I'm not sure that that's right. I think the way he did it was good for me. You run your first full-time season in 1990, then in 1991, early in the season, you get your first win at Bristol, and you get by Dale Earnhardt to do it. What do you remember about that day? Yeah, that was um, you know, that was you know one of those um, you know we had a good car and we were you know it was still asphalt then and we we're running along and had a had a restart I think late in the day late in the run and for some reason I know this is sound might sound kind of weird but I think he had a tire going down and for whatever reason I mean I I. I didn't see it, but I knew he had, you follow somebody for that many laps and you know what his car is going to do. You know what he's going to do. You knew, you knew everything about his moves. And I knew on that restart or a restart towards the end that it looked like his car was like going up the right track, just right. inches. Yeah. And I mean, you could tell that and you could see that, you know, the fight in the wheel that he had. So anyway, I'm like opportunity, right? So I got, you know, got close up to him, passed him. He did have a tire going down, I think. I'm, I'm pretty sure he did. So anyway, I was just like, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it because we'd had a good, um, 90 was good. We'd run good, but we hadn't won. And um, at least I don't think, we didn't win a 90. I don't think we did. No, you so did not. Was 91. 91 was your first, first win. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so we got to that point and it's like, you know, we've been close for a long time. And Earnhardt was, you know, obviously the guy to beat all the time. And so when I got by him, I mean, then I had David Green to worry about behind me because he was closing on in on me. But, um, you know, just the fact of beating Earnhardt, and I know he had a tire going down or he had a slow leak or something like that. His car didn't, wasn't working as good. But, I mean, we still had to beat everybody else too. And, uh, I mean, just to win Bristol, your first race, and, um, you know, to beat Earnhardt at the same time, I mean, it's just gratifying because, I mean, you you, you follow that three car all the time with us in the – Bush Grand National Series or later on in life. It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. man, I've seen a lot of this rear bumper, good wrench car. I'm like tired <laughs> of it. And, uh, but you know, I, and, and it was, you know, again, it was gratifying to, to be able to win either win at Bristol and, and having to race him at the end of it as well. You and Kenny Wallace go back and forth that year for the championship. Mm-hmm. And 
at Charlotte in October, you get caught up in a wreck when Earnhardt got into Phil Parsons and NASCAR parks Earnhardt for the rest of the day, but that doesn't help you any because you're in the garage with a torn up race car. And I always thought it was pretty cool that Steve Mill <laughs> evidently came up to the car and helped mm-hmm. repair the car. What do you remember about that? <laughs> well, what I vividly remember was, you know, we had that crash, we come down pit road and we're working on it. You know, everybody's working on it. And, um, you know, I remember Steve Mill I'm looking out the right side window, and here Steve Meal is. And he reached, he leaned his head in the car, and he was like, Don't worry, we're going to get this. And I'm like, What the heck is Steve Meal doing here? I'm yeah. Like, and yeah. my first thought was, What are you doing here? You know? Yeah. Because I wasn't yeah. expecting to see Steve uh, working on the car. You know, I, I mean, because we're not, we're not work. We worked together years at, at Hagen, but we're not working on the car then. So I just. And he was a that. Ford guy then, and you were driving. A GM product. Yeah. Oldsmobile. Yeah. Well, so. I don't, back then it was just helping friends out. Okay. You yeah. know, and, and he, yeah, he really leaned in there. We're going to get this. It's all right. You know, I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it was awesome. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, Steve and I, like I said, we worked together at Hagen, or I don't know if I said this, but we worked together at Hagen for years whenever Terry was in after the suitcase Jake thing. So anyway, um, I mean, it was just a friend thing. And so he, you know, without, I mean, everybody dug in and he, here he come you know, watching on TV or something like that and come running down there and pitched right in. As I mentioned, you and Kenny went back mm-hmm. and forth and traded the lead, I don't know how many times, but was there ever a point where you felt like you might be out of it? And if so, what tipped the scales in your favor? You mean out of it, like out of the running forward? As far as, far uh, as the championship Yes, yeah. I always, I mean, I mean, I know, I know we, we had a battle going throughout the years back and forth and um, you know, we would have, I mean, it seemed like down at the end of it, you know, with a crash at Charlotte or, you know, he had a good run somewhere and I might have a bad one or vice versa. You know, when he crashed at New Hampshire and broke some ribs, right? you know, I went to the hospital on the way home. Did you really? Yep. And check on him. And, um, and he, uh, he was hurt pretty bad. I mean, that was, that was a big wreck. So we go to Rockingham the next weekend. I think Rusty drives the car, uh, and I guess he had to start it, I'm sure, for yeah. points, but Rusty ended up racing it. Well, I knew my dad was, he was pissed. Yeah. Shouldn't be letting Rusty Wallace drive right. this car because yeah. he's yeah. a cup guy, yada, yada, yada. And that uh, I was like, you know, bring it on, right? I mean, <laughs> so what? I mean, yeah. I guess I had enough confidence in yeah. it. You know, yeah. I didn't really worry about it. I had enough uh, feel for our team and, and everything that we were doing that we were, uh, you know, we weren't guaranteed, but we were definitely, I thought we were strong enough to beat him. Uh, when he had that crash at New Hampshire, obviously that put it more in our favor. And then, and then when Rusty, you know, stepped in and drove it again, my dad was mad the whole time. And so, ended up we finished pretty close to each other. It was kind of a null moment, you know. You know, hell, I'm thinking this is awesome, Rusty Wallace driving. You know, we're now yeah. we're racing against Rusty Wallace, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, uh, so then we go to. Uh, uh, we go to Martinsville, and I mean, you know, one of my better tracks, and I know it's one of Kenny's too. But I mean, I felt like probably New Hampshire was a trigger point of like, okay, now we we're, you know, it leaned towards us a little bit more. Before that, it was kind of it was definitely back and forth. But when he got hurt, when he had to crash at New Hampshire, and whatever happened, I don't remember something broke. Anyway, that was kind of helped us out to get to secure that over, you know, if that hadn't happened. Terry had won the 1984 Winston Cup Championship, and then in 1991, you win the Bush Series Championship. What did it mean to you to hold that trophy that day? Um, I mean, it obviously, 
you know, a dream come true. I mean, we, you know, as a family, we'd work so hard at, uh, you know, doing what we do. Um, you know, thinking about the time, thinking about when Terry took the leap of faith to, to, to go to North Carolina, we followed along and, um, you know, raced from late model stock, you know, Orange County, South Boston uh, stuff, got a little, uh, little, you know, two car garage behind my mom and dad's house with three cars in it. Didn't work out. That's, that's, <laughs> that was hard. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, many nights of, many nights of, you know, leave there at, 10 o'clock, go home. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many times you'd, we'd work during the day and we would work at night. And in, and not ninety ninety one, but before that. But so hoisting the trophy or winning that, thinks back, you know, I think back at, you know, working at Hagen during the day and then working on that thing at night till 10 or 11 o'clock, go home, get up next morning, go to work at Hagen all day. I mean, there was times it's like, Man, I don't know. Should we just throw in the towel? This is this is way too hard. Yeah, you know, I'm not yeah. sure we can get yeah. this. You know, I remember. So it, it reflects back on. I remember going to Daytona in 1990 for the first race, and I had four we had four employees, and I think I was four. My dad might have been five. It was just so it was four or five of us. I'm driving the truck down there. You know, me and Chris Hussey and and Wayne Lehman. Chris so, Hussey. Yep, yeah. we're driving the truck down there. <laughs> yeah, and Chris leans out. And Wayne's the back. Wayne Lehman's the back. He slept the whole time. So Chris is like, fire. And I'm like, where? In here. Well, the electrical underneath the dog box is on fire. So we really? stop on the side of the road. We fix that. We go to Daytona and run the race. I'm, I know I'm stepping backwards in time on it. Yeah, you. yeah. So we finish. Well, don't you crash your car and have to get one from Terry? That's a different year. Different year. So okay. this is our first right. time there. So we yeah. finished. We qualified good. We finished fifth or sixth that yeah. year. First time there. Led some laps like, whoa, you know. Um, so we get in the truck, me and Chris, we drive home, Wayne's in the back. I'm driving through Savannah and I'm so tired. I can't hardly stay oh. awake. Chris oh, is on yeah. the right side. I said, here, just jump over here. Just hold it wide open. Don't shift no gears. Cause he didn't know how to shift gears on a, on a box truck with a 10 speed transmission. So I was like, which I didn't know either, but we just figured it out. <laughs> so he drove all the way to the exit sign at Darlington, put it in neutral or the exit at Darlington off of 80, 95, got to the stop sign, pulled up the emergency brake or pulled up the air brake. He gets over on the other side. I jump in and push the brake and drive home. You know what I mean? You just think about those times. Oh, you're like, yeah. Yeah. Why, yeah. Am, am I really doing this? And we had one, I think before that race, we were working at a Cliff Stewart shop, and we were welding up something one night. It was 10 o'clock, and my dad, and where I'm welding something on the back of the car, next thing I heard was like this big boom. And I was like, what the heck was that? My dad's over there. He come walking in there like, what was that? Well, I was welding underneath it, and the fuel cell had some fuel on it. And the, uh, the deck lid, boom, popped up. And it came back down. So I looked, uh, and there was, fire. Wow. there was fire on top of the fuel cell. We put it out right quick. And basically, we just sat down, and uh, I, I didn't have a beer, but I think he was having a beer, and I was like, <laughs> I think I'm done for the night. That's kind of scared the crap out of me. So there's times wow. like that you think, why are we doing this? Yeah. We're almost not doing it. We're yeah, working our yeah, guts yeah, out. Yeah. And then so when you get to that point, and you – you have that moment I that understand. you that it, yeah. it it resonates all that stuff that you have done and do whoever it is has gone through everything that they put their life into it and everybody usually does so it just sat there and i just thought wow i can't believe we accomplished this and and um you know we're not the most sentimental people probably or we don't show a lot of emotion but and that was that was definitely for me you know i just think back at like whew, i mean it just kind of takes you away when you think that you're able to 
keep, you know, you just keep working. And that's my dad's work ethic. You know, you just, <laughs> you don't give up. You, uh, you know, you, yeah. you keep doing it. You make good decisions and be smart and work hard. Hey listeners, this is Eric Quinn, General Manager of QWare. We are so proud to partner with Rick and Steve and the Seaton Vault Podcast in order to bring you these great shows that you're hearing every single week. For over 30 years, the scene was the only place you needed to go to find the NASCAR content and news that you needed and wanted. The most talented writers, the greatest photographers in all sports made the scene the ultimate source for NASCAR information. At QWare, we've taken that same philosophy and applied it to our online maintenance management system, one source. One solution that provides you with all of the information you need to get the job done. At QWare, we know that every building, every campus, every factory, school, shop, museum, healthcare facility, every office, every building, it it all needs to be maintained. If the information your facilities team needs to keep your building up and running isn't at their fingertips, then you're probably losing time and money. QWare allows your maintenance team to access the important information from anywhere in the world with just a push of a button. As proud as we are to help bring you the Scene Vault podcast, we at QWare are just as proud to provide the most simple-to-use, inexpensive cloud maintenance solution on the market today. We would be honored to have you look at QWare and see what we can do for your workplace. Now enjoy the rest of this week's podcast, and when you get a minute, check us out at qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. That's qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. QWare is a product of the CNS companies. QWare. Maintain excellence. So Dennis Bobby Labonte makes the move from Corpus Christi, Texas with his family. He's, I think he was 14, 15 years old. He was wanting to be a surfer. He wanted to spend some time out on the Gulf of Mexico. He wanted to be a surfer. Well, I know Corpus Christi is a beautiful area, but, yeah. and I've known Bobby for many years, but I never knew that he wanted to be a surfer boy. Well, his dream in life was to own a Volkswagen Beetle with a surfboard on top. Now, <laughs> there's an image for you. Wow. Wow. So they move to North Carolina, and Bobby starts hanging out at Terry's shop, the Hagen Racing Shop, and he's there, and he's, I don't know, that I would say that he was underfoot, but he was there and he was hanging out and he was begging for them to let him do something. And Jake Elder was there at the time. So I don't know how well Jake Elder would have responded to a pesky teenager being around the shop. There were probably a few testy moments along the way. (laughs) So finally, Jake, I guess to keep Bobby quiet, told Bobby to start sweeping the floors at the shop. And that is how Bobby Labonte future NASCAR Hall of Famer, got his start in the sport, literally sweeping the floors at the Hagen Racing Shop. Well, then he got a promotion and (laughs) was able to start washing the team's vans. There were evidently some dividends in working for Billy Hagen. According to Bobby, he once stole an engine from the Hagen Shop to run a race at Caraway. I'm surprised he didn't tell you he was just borrowing it. Run. <laughs> no, he said he flat out stole it. So, <laughs> well, I do remember Bobby at Caraway. Really? Okay, at Caraway, because uh, uh, one of my uh, friends in the Catawba Valley area, Dennis Setzer, used to run late models. Okay, and yeah. he and Bobby battled along with other stars. They battled week in and week out at Caraway, and uh, Bobby was. 
he was one of the cars you had to beat every time you pulled into Caraway to run a late model race. Bobby was 18 years old when he made his first start in the Budweiser late model sportsman division, what would become the Bush Series and what would become what is today the Xfinity Series. But at that time, he was racing not against other people his own age. He was racing against grown men with families. He was racing against Sam Ard. He was racing against Jack Ingram. And this was their living. This was their way of providing for their families. That's a different thing than just going out and running in circles around a racetrack. Oh, absolutely. These, uh, back in this era that we're talking about when, when Bobby started in the, the Budweiser Bush series, the, you spoke of Sam Arden, Jack Ingram, and, and others. That's what they yeah, did for yeah, a yeah, living. That's yeah. how they provided for their families. I kind of look at it like this. If you're a young kid, if you're 18 years old, Bobby Labonte racing against a Sam Art, a Jack Ingram, Tommy Houston, whoever, if you make a mistake and you take one of those guys out, not only do you have to deal with them as a fellow competitor, I mean, you're liable to be impacting, you know, whether or not they make their house payment that way. Oh, absolutely. Whether they put food on the table, whether they pay for the kids' braces or whatever they're having to do, that's a pretty serious thing. Yes, yes, it was. The thing about Bobby racing with those veterans is he came from a racing family. Yes. Yeah. And he knew. So he knew the protocol. He knew yeah. what it meant yeah. to these guys. Now, certainly he wanted to compete and he wanted to win, but he knew uh, the circumstances that he was racing against veterans at tracks where they had raced all their life. And here he was an up and coming uh, future Hall of Famer. Uh, but he knew, uh, to a degree, his role in the sport at that time. Bobby also talked about his relationship with his dad, Bob, who is, let's just say, he, <laughs> he's the definition of old school. I have this impression of Bob Labonte as being very tough, very stern, my way or the highway kind of guy. But Bobby also said that Bob has a heart as big as all outdoors <laughs> And he also said that his dad could be a big old teddy bear. Now, that I don't know that I can quite get my arms around. Obviously, I don't spend the time with Bob that Bobby does, but Bob Labonte as teddy bear. What's your impression of that? <laughs> well, I've, I've spent a lot of time around Bob at the racetrack and watched him work on cars and and lead teams and, and, and become a, a, a figure in the sport. And I'm having... I'm, I'm just, I'm just having a hard time seeing him be a teddy bear and meeting trick or treaters at the door, <laughs> giving them candy. Now, here's a question for you: Bob Labonte has two sons who are in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Bobby's going to get inducted here in a couple months. There's one other father who can claim that. Who is it? Lee Petty. Richards in the Hall of Fame, and so is Maurice Chief. Would you believe me if I told you that was my first guess? No, okay. absolutely. <laughs> Bobby did talk about working with Chris Hussey, and I sent Chris a message on Facebook, and I asked him about his experiences with Bob. And, yeah, Chris had quite a bit to say about Bob. Bob was absolutely the hardest-working man I ever worked for. I liked working for Bob. You never had to guess what he was thinking or where you stood with him because he would let you know quickly. He rarely gave compliments, so it was difficult to know if he approved of you. Chris continued, and he said, 
which leads to one of the most satisfying memories of my career. I told Bobby that I was leaving his team and going to Roush Racing. Obviously, he told Bob I would be leaving. Bob didn't speak to me for the rest of the week. On the final day of my employment, while loading my toolbox, Bob came out the door walking my way. I was prepared for the worst, one final tongue lashing. Now, can you imagine being in Chris's shoes? That would be tough. Yeah. Yes, it, yes, it would. Uh, that would uh, that would be tough uh, uh, working uh, for Bob and that family and and you develop relationships yeah. with yeah. each and every team that you work with. Uh, some of them may not be positive at the end, but you do develop relationships that last. And that would be it. Would be tough to go in and say you're changing jobs and uh, looking in another direction. Bob came up to him and he said, Bob said, if you get over there and it's not what you expected, you can always come back here. Now, I can see Bob Labonte saying that. I really can. And Chris said, I still get emotional when I recall his words. The toughest SOB in the garage approved of me and my skills. So that must have been a pretty powerful moment. Yes, I I can appreciate that, knowing Chris and Bob both. And I can appreciate Bob's feelings losing someone uh, like Chris and what he meant to their team, as well as other team members. But handling it in that way, typical Bob Labonte in my Bobby got his very first Bush Series win at Bristol in April of 1991. Now, Dennis, that weekend is hugely significant in NASCAR history for another reason. Do you know what that reason might be? Well, I would have a guess um, that it probably had something to do with your legendary career. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was my very first credentialed race weekend. Who were you credentialed under? A magazine called Country America, and I was assigned to do a story on Richard Petty. Oh, Mm -hmm. how about that? All these years I've known you. Yes, Country America. Now, I don't have any idea if that magazine is still in publication. I don't know, but they got me my first credentials. Now, Dennis, I couldn't sleep the night before. I was so excited, man, and I was so nervous about interviewing Richard Betty. I could not sleep, and I wound up getting to the racetrack at 6 a.m. I was there when the credential office opened, and then I got my credentials. I got into the infield. I made my way to where Richard's pits were. And I couldn't work up the nerve to speak to him. And I basically stood there. It it was hours. I stood there before I finally worked up the nerve to speak to him. And (laughs) I worked up the nerve to speak to him during a Bush Series practice session. Really? So you can imagine how well that worked out with Richard's hearing and all that. So I was basically screaming at him, trying to get his attention. And these were... These were the times before you were allowed to have your big hauler in there. Right. I mean, you'd, yeah, yeah. you'd, you'd pull your race car in with a box truck yes. or a pickup yeah. truck and an yeah. open trailer. I remember those days quite well when you'd come in over the second turn uh, hill there and before they had the nice entranceways into the track now. And uh, so you didn't have your, your nice lounges in no, your haulers to go hide. No. And, and and the noise level in there, mm, 
Yeah. I can imagine trying well, to have a conversation, much less talking to the king. Well, finally, Richard interpreted what I was trying to get at and what I was asking him. And we talked during a break in the action so we could both hear. And Dennis, I got to tell you, we were in the back of that moving truck. And that was probably one of the worst interviews of my career because the entire time I'm thinking in my mind, I'm interviewing Richard Petty. This guy's won 200 races. He's won seven Daytona 500s. He's won seven championships. This is Richard Petty. I I was a big Richard Petty fan. And I know when I walked away from that interview that Richard thought there was something wrong with me. That's how nervous I was. I was stuttering. I, you know, I was fumbling my words. And just to be honest with you, that was probably one of the most important journalism lessons I ever learned. Now, the same thing happened on one other occasion. I had the chance to interview Charlie Duke, who walked on the moon during the flight of Apollo 16. And the whole time that I'm talking to him, I'm doing the same thing. I'm talking to Charlie Duke. He's walked on the moon. He's one of 12 people that's done that. And, you know, and the whole time... I'm just in awe. And that taught me a very important lesson about journalism. When you're a journalist, you cannot be intimidated by who you're interviewing. You can't be in awe of who you're interviewing because you have a job to do. And if you don't do it well and if you don't ask the right questions in the right manner, you're not going to get a very good story. And if you don't get a good story, your career's not going to last very long. Well, I've got to believe that uh, you were not the first and certainly not the last <laughs> to be yeah. a little yeah. timid or intimidated yeah. by yeah. talking with Richard. And probably in some uh, degree of way, he gets a little charge out of giving young, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. inspiring uh, yeah. media folks interviews and seeing their reactions. Bobby went on to win the Bush Series race, and he got by Dale Earnhardt to do it. Dale had a tire going down or whatever it was. And he passed Dale, I guess, maybe 30 laps to go or so. Dale wound up, I believe, finishing third. And (laughs) I'm standing there in the infield. I guess it was at the gas pumps because he came right up to where I was standing. He was still sitting in the car, and he took his helmet off, took his goggles off, those bubble goggles that are so well-known, and he threw them out the window of his car, and they landed right at my feet. <laughs> and I picked them up and I took them home with me. Now, I was working at a Christian music distributor at the time. I was doing billing there, and there was a guy who worked in the warehouse who was a huge Dell Earnhardt fan. That's all he ever talked about. I wore Dell Earnhardt t shirts to work every day. So I wound up giving Patrick those goggles. I would give anything for him back, <laughs> as you can imagine. And then the huge thing that kind of stands out to me about the Winston Cup race was standing at the entrance to the backstretch pits coming off turn two, and I look up and I see Sterling Marlin's car engulfed in flames. And, I mean, it was one of those situations where time kind of stopped. I remember Sterling kind of crawling out of the car. His suit was blackened. Well, then he kind of gets out of the car and he kind of falls immediately to the ground and Chocolate Myers and Will Lind from Dale Earnhardt's crew were basically the first two people there. So I, I thought that was kind of neat, the camaraderie. Oh, of I, re- the I was there that day. I remember that wreck. I remember how uh, uh, horrific it was. And I uh, was certainly glad to see Sterling uh, walk away. 
Well, then Bobby went on and he talked about the struggles that he had trying to break into the sport. On the way to Daytona for the first time in 1990, some of the electrical stuff on the hall <laughs> caught on fire. So he and Chris Hussey had to deal with that. Then on the way back, Bobby was so tired that he had Chris Hussey actually take over driving while they were still moving. Well, you know, you and I both have records of being at the racetrack for a long, long, long time. I guess my record for being at a racetrack would have to be Kentucky. One year when it rained and they had practice and qualifying the morning of the night race. And so we were there. I know that I was there that day for about 17 hours. So you and I both know what it's like to be tired at a racetrack. I think the uh, best I can recall, uh, mine was at Richmond. Uh, Bush Series race was on Friday night. And the Bush cars would not go in until Friday morning. The garage would open 6 o'clock, 7 or something. And I was doing PR with a, a Bush Series team. And so I was there at least by 7 o'clock. Uh, when things started happening in the garage area. And the race didn't start till 7 o'clock at then night? Had, well, oh. The race was not scheduled to start till like 7.30 because you had a couple practice sessions for Ooh, Bush. And it rained. Ooh. And then you had cup practice, oh cup qualifying, and <laughs> it rains. Oh, my and gosh. And it rains. I'm going to guess that race started about 10.30 Friday night. 250-lap bush race. And I would imagine at about that time, you didn't give a flying crap who won that race or what yeah, happened. That's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, you're pretty spot on there. To needless to say, I was hoping for and didn't get 250 green flag laps. But, that, of course, the, the race ended and the team I was working for had a good day but didn't win by the time I left the racetrack it was somewhere in the 230 range oh now that's gosh. part of yeah. the story yeah my wife and my family had gone to Myrtle Beach with her sister no and I was to drive from Richmond to Myrtle Beach to spend the rest of the weekend and a few days with them Oh, my goodness. I pulled into the hotel at Myrtle Beach at 7.30 on Saturday morning and had been up. The wow. entire, now, I wasn't at the racetrack the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, that was a long, long day. When they throw the green flag at 10.30, quarter to 11 at night, you've had a long day. The Bristol night race in 1995, after Dale Earnhardt got into Terry Labonte and Terry spun across the finish line, that was a race that had been delayed by rain. And so, it, like you say, it started late. And by the time I left the Enfield Media Center, it was probably somewhere in there. Probably, I would say probably 2.30, 3 o'clock, somewhere in there conservatively. I went out the main entrance there. And I was going back towards Johnson City. So I had to go across the two lanes, then go to the median, then turn left. Dennis, I didn't stop coming out of the entrance until I got to the median. I was so tired. And so if there had been traffic coming, it might not have ended so well. So, yeah, racing's a great gig. It's fun to be involved, but it's not all no, it's not. grins and giggles. No, picking up your... Uh, newspaper and, and reading the articles or the columns that sports writers uh, follow the sport and, and produce, 
uh, you don't see the behind the scenes <laughs> and those late night hours and the interviews and yeah. the editing yeah. and it yeah. goes into it. Dennis, I don't know if you're familiar with Brian Kelb or not, but he is a dealer in vintage racing apparel. You talk about a driver and a certain T-shirt, he's probably got it or can get his hands on it. So he does quite a bit of business on that, and he was the first person to step up as an advertiser. Very good. With us. So follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Not only does he do motorsports apparel, he also does vintage rock and roll T-shirts. So if there's a band that you followed, hey, he could get you hooked up. I told him that Steve was a big Moody Blues fan. Well, next thing I know, Steve's got a Moody Blues T-shirt from 20 years ago. So follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. So, Dennis, you and I both know when we open up the mailbag, there's no telling what kind of questions that we're going to get, and that was certainly the case here. So, to begin with, Phil Baxter from Hermitage, Tennessee, wanted to know what kinds of experiences did the two of you have with competitors where the public's perception of them was maybe different than who they actually were behind the scenes? Oh, excellent question. I don't know if we're ready to tell everything we know. (laughs) I saw that gleam gleam in your eye. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you say? Who does have a perception in the public's eye that maybe is different behind the scenes? There were quite a few that, uh, that, that had, uh, you know, a tough, uh, a tough exterior or, or had that image that when you got to know them, uh, they, they were very personable, very, very friendly. Um, and there were, there were, there were quite a few, uh, Tommy Ellis comes to mind. He was a hard, what? hard, hard racer. You're kidding me. <laughs> that may surprise a lot of our listeners, but he was a tough, tough but I saw him in some situations with fans uh, that were Tommy Ellis fans. I can remember a family with a couple small kids, and they had Goo Goo Cluster T-shirts when he drove for them yes. in the Bush Series. Now, there's a T-shirt I want, Brian Gale. Won a, won, <laughs> won a yeah. championship. Yeah. But, but there were just those times where that tough shell was broken, and he was the most – enjoyable person to be around and entertaining those kids and granting them pictures. And, and, you know, there, there were so many, uh, that were very, very quiet and, and, you know, didn't speak unless spoken to, they didn't have to do a whole lot of interviews. Bobby Labonte, who we talked about earlier was one of them. You literally had to pry to get him to speak. He was very quiet, very serious, about what he was doing and, and always thinking about how to do better and become better. But as far as just sitting around chatting, that wasn't necessarily uh, uh, Bobby Labonte's uh, resume. And there were quite a few. I, I worked with Robert Presley. He was the same way. Grew up in the mountains of North Carolina, 
hard-nosed family racer. His dad, Bob, and, and the brothers were in the sport. Uh, very tough competitor. Uh, not the most outgoing person when he was racing when he was younger. But I saw him in some situations with uh, the media and sponsors and, and fans that would come up to you. Uh, just uh, it almost make your heart melt to see how the fans accepted that a lot of the kids or the younger fans that would get the chance to talk with or have a picture with someone that they enjoyed watching race. Uh, it, it was just so heartwarming. Obviously, you Dale Earnhardt, tough exterior and intimidator and those type things. I saw him do things for people and their families that uh, the general public never know about, but the kind heart that he had and the things he did for his fellow man that went unnoticed and he didn't want it to be noticed. Uh, but he certainly had a soft heart, as a lot of those guys did. I mean, we could, we could run down the, the list. But when they put that helmet on, it was another story. But I saw him without that helmet on in a lot of situations that would make you very proud to be a race fan. Well, you know, before I got into the sport professionally, before I got into the garage and I had my first credentialed race, my Saturdays and Sundays were spent on Sandy Estep's couch at her home. And you learn one thing very quickly when you watch a race with Sandy Estep. And number one, she's a big Richard Petty fan, big Harry Gant fan. On the other side of that coin, she did not like Jeff Bodine at all. As a result... Before I got into the sport, I didn't particularly care for Jeff Bodine or Todd Bodine or Brett Bodine because they were Bodines. I mean, it was Hatfields and McCoys. There was really no way of explaining it other than, you know, we lived in Tennessee and they were from up north. They were Yankees. So I go to my very first Bristol race as a fan in April of 1990. So that weekend, I'm walking around the, the concourse and everything, and I'm looking at all the souvenir trailers, and I'm wanting to buy me a pair of those Winston headsets because, I, you know, I wanted to listen to the race. And the best price that I could find was at Jeff Bodine's trailer. And I'm standing there, and I'm talking to my then-wife, and I made the comment. I said, I kind of hate to buy it at Jeff Bodine's trailer. I said it close enough to where the people working the counter heard me. And guess who was working the trailer that day? Jeff Bodine's mom and daddy. Hello. <laughs> and Mrs. Bodine said, we're not bad people. <laughs> you know what, Dennis? I bought my headset at Jeff Bodine's trailer. <laughs> I'm thinking you didn't get a discount price. Oh, no, that, I did either. not get a discount. I did not. So... <laughs> And Dennis, once I got into the sport and got to know a few people, uh, the Bodines were great people. I got to know Todd real well during his days in the Bush series. So perception is not always reality. But then another story, and I'm not going to name the driver, but it was a driver who I respected as a fan. He was somebody that I looked up to. And when I was trying to break into the sport, Dennis, you've heard me talk about my experiences a few times, but I go to Martinsville and I don't have any money. I'm just getting credentials, not getting paid for the stories. I snuck food out of the press box at Martinsville, slept in my car, got to North Wilkesboro the next weekend and was going to sleep in my car again, sneak food out of the press box. Well, got to the track on Friday morning and I found out that they didn't serve food until Sunday morning. 
And I'm telling you, that, that was rock bottom. So when I'm at my rock bottom point, I go to the chapel service on Sunday morning at the racetrack. And I get there before anybody else because I was new and didn't really have anything to do. And I'm sitting on the front row because I'm early. And this driver walked up to me and he said, that's our seats, get up. And in that moment, I was just stunned. I was shocked. That was tough. Being in that position and going to chapel, the one place that you would think would be a place of refuge at the track, and this driver said, get up. That's my seat. I got to tell you, it opened my eyes a little bit. That would have been tough, Rick. Really, really tough. Yeah, that, that was something. That was something. Now, the next question that I had was from Andy Austin at Andy Austin, Maine on Twitter. And he asked, out of the 1990s Bush Series regulars who never got a shot at Cup, which one should have? Now, you and I both made a career out of the Bush Series. So we were around a lot of drivers who, for one reason or another, never moved up to Cup. So who would you say? In thinking back during that period, uh, probably Jason Keller comes to mind. You can't say Jason Keller. That's who I was going to say. Well, that's something we agree on. That can't be. We can't agree on anything. (laughs) Still don't like the one-race playoff. Oh. (laughs) Now, see, Dennis, our listeners have not been introduced to this groundbreaking idea. You opened the door. You got to usher our listeners inside this wonderful idea of mine. Tell them what that's about. I'm glad I only have to do this once a year. (laughs) In our earlier exploits over the airways, we discussed uh, potential and uh, interesting ways to determine the champion for the major divisions of NASCAR. Now, this has been several years ago, but... We each had our thoughts, and this was when uh, NASCAR was changing the point system, going to a playoff and various forms of the, the chase, and yeah, the yeah, chase yeah. And, and all those things. We were kind of forerunners in our thinking before all this yes, came about. Yes, we are. Yeah. <clears throat> so, well, some of us were. And <laughs> so it boiled down to Rick's uh, solution to determining yes, the champion. Steve Phelps, if you're listening, grab a pencil. You're going to need to write this down. I mean, he was had good points, and and but I cannot express how adamant he was that this was the way it needed to be determined. And his idea was a one-race playoff, winner take yes, all. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Now, here's the deal. Now, I did not like the chase. Didn't like it. I believe to this day that a season champion should be determined by Daytona in February all the way to Homestead or wherever the season finale is going to be. To me, that's the season championship. Now, if NASCAR wants to have a playoff format, if they want to have a chase, they're going to have a chase. They're going to have a playoff, and there's nothing the rest of us can do about it. Now, my idea was to run the full schedule and then – take the top, I don't know, 25 in points, put them into the first playoff race, okay? The top 15 finishers in that race go into a second playoff race, okay? Then the top 10 finishers 
in that race go into the championship race. Whoever wins that race wins the championship, period. None of this, whoever finishes highest among the four at the season finale with everybody else on the racetrack, you know, and the controversy about the non-playoff drivers shouldn't race the playoff drivers is hard, blah, blah, blah. In my format, anybody who is in the 10-driver championship race has a shot at the championship. At that time, Steve it Phelps, was you can write me a check. It was certainly an, it was <laughs> and certainly send it an, to Yakinville, North Carolina. <laughs> it was certainly an interesting concept, and, and I'm I must admit I was a little startled, but I listened and <laughs> thought it through, and thought it was a, a, a little out of bounds at the time. Little did I know. Um, <laughs> Uh, were you were you consulted by any powers to be on your theories of determining a champion? The championship format now, the highest finisher among the four drivers, that's a distant cousin of my idea. Now, see, this is why Dennis and I record once a year. We're way off the subject. <laughs> so the Bush Series driver who never got a shot at Cup, you would say would have to be Jason Keller. I absolutely agree. A good way to get Jason going was to ask him when <laughs> when he was going to move up to NASCAR. Really? Yes. Oh, he yeah, he would get a little hot about that because <laughs> his response to that would be, I'm already in NASCAR. I'm in the Bush Series, and that's sanctioned by NASCAR. We went into the infield at Dover one year, and they had signs for the motor coach lot, and it actually said – the NASCAR motor coach lot this way and the Bush Series motor coach lot that way. And so I had to bring that to Jason's attention just to give him a hard time. Now, Jason, very well-spoken, family man, and he could drive. Oh, he, absolutely. He won a total of 10 Bush Series races everywhere from IRP to Talladega. He could oh, get the job done. Very talented young man, uh, worked in their garage, worked on his race cars. Very intelligent, knew his way around the car, what made him go. Nothing but high praise for Jason Keller. And I knew it, but I had to go back and confirm it. He ran just two cup races. Both of them were in 2003, one at Richmond, where he took over the Army car after Jerry Nadeau got hurt so very, very, very badly during practice. And then the other was for DEI in the number one Pennzoil car at Talladega when they were kind of shuffling drivers a little bit. So those were the two races that he ran. Now, I think he tried to qualify at Indy in 1996 in the number 27 David Blair car, but those were the only three attempts that he ever made. Now, I don't know that Jason and I ever sat down and really discussed why, but if I had to sit here and make an educated guess, because I know Jason pretty well, you know, we had a lot of meals together, a lot of Chinese buffets. So I would say that he was content where he was. I think he was satisfied with being a bigger fish in a smaller pond. I also think that his family played a big part in it. And he was also involved in his family business. So for whatever reason, he never moved up to NASCAR. Well, he was, no question, very talented. And he was the type driver who didn't abuse or tear up his equipment. No, he didn't. It was a, a family operation. They had some uh, a couple outstanding uh, crew members that worked with him and stayed with him uh, throughout his Bush Series career. Um, Well-respected in the sport, but he was uh, a, a threat to win and was very competitive everywhere he went. 
Oh, I think it's funny you say that about him not tearing up a lot of equipment. We actually had Dale Earnhardt Jr. on the podcast, and he was talking about running his first race, his very first Bush Series race at Myrtle Beach. <laughs> and he said that he had a run-in with Jason Keller where he felt like he needed payback. And he said for the rest of his career, he wanted to get payback on Jason Keller. And I was like, wait a sec, Jason Keller? Jason Keller from Greenville, South Carolina? Jason Keller? <laughs> because that wasn't his... M.O. That wasn't the way that he drove. He was not a dirty driver. He certainly wasn't one that was going to get into a lot of on-track stuff. Well, that proves another part of the sport that people talk about, and that's race drivers have very good memories. (laughs) If you think an elephant never forgets, ask a race car driver about some of his past instances. (laughs) Hi, race fans. I'm Dave Marcus, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Well, Dennis, we're coming off turn four to the white flag. (laughs) How's that for old times' sake? Dennis, thank you so much for being here, stepping in at the last minute, and I guess we'll see you next year. Well, it's always a pleasure, Rick. I appreciate you thinking about me uh, uh, to pinch it occasionally. And I look forward to the next opportunity to have visiting with you. Pinch hit. Now, that brings to mind the fact that you did play baseball at NC State. We are in the presence of North Carolina athletic legend. And I think since the last time that you and I talked, you have been inducted into the Catawba Sports Hall of Fame. That's How true, my friend. Uh, in uh, in May, I was honored uh, with induction into the Catawba County Sports Hall of Fame, of which there are 88 members now. Uh, some very, very prominent figures in the sport, and then some that got enough votes like me <laughs> but it is quite an honor and i'm i'm truly uh, honored and, and blessed to uh, to be in that company and it's something that i'll cherish forever well you know my regular co-host steve wade he was named the squire hall award winner last year so he's got his display in the nascar hall of fame you're in the catawba county sports hall of fame i've not been inducted into anything you got to start some kind of institution and make me your first inductee. I think some people in Yadkinville need to step up. <laughs> they just need to step up in Yadkinville. Come on, folks. 